Last week, we covered the first five sections of this passage. In verse one, we saw the speaker. It's Nehemiah. Ezra is the author. Nehemiah is being quoted by Ezra for the first seven chapters. And in this section, we went over the significance of Nehemiah's name, that his name means Yahweh comforts or God comforts, and how throughout this entire book, it's God's people going to God and God providing the comfort that they need, the direction, the wisdom, and the strength they need to face the trial that they're facing. Then we looked at the timing of this book, the timing, and look ahead at the second half of verse one. It says, it was the 20th year, meaning the 20th year of King Artaxerxes I, meaning that according to our calendar, it's 446 to 444 BC, meaning that by this time, the Israelites' captivity is over is over. They had sinned against God. God scattered them throughout the Babylonian empire for 70 years. And then after those 70 years, God began to bring the people of God back to Israel, bring them back to Jerusalem. And by this time, some, but not all of the Jews have returned to Israel. So that is the timing of this book. Then we touched on the location of this book. We see at the end of verse one, it's in Susa, the citadel, which is the capital of the Persian Empire at this time. Then we looked at the problem. What is the problem? Look at the end of verse three. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates are destroyed with fire. At this time, a city without a wall was like your house without doors and everybody knowing it. It meant trouble for the people of God. As the text says in verse 3, it means they're unprotected. It means they're vulnerable. It means they're in a dangerous spot. And for the people of Israel, it also meant, as we talked about last week, shame for the people of God. Why? Because at this time you could say Jerusalem's the representative city of God. It was where the temple was and was going to be rebuilt. It was where the future Messiah was going to come and it would be the capital of the Messiah's kingdom. Yet it's in ruins. And the people around, what would they do? All the pagans who don't believe in God, they would point to it and say, look how great your God is. Look at the city of God. And God is mocked, so the people of God are full of shame because they don't want God to be mocked. They know that he is worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. So that is the problem. The people of God are unprotected and their God is being mocked. There is trouble and shame. And then we saw the response, Nehemiah's response. Look at verse four. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Listen, when we face a problem, you and I, the world will tell us, and often our heart will tell us to do dumb things, 
to do ultimately unhelpful things. For example, when I was in college and one of my uncles died, my solution to the problem, I immediately went to the gym. That was the solution to my grief. The gym, that's dumb. Instead of going to the God of comfort, instead of going to the God, which Psalm 147 verse 3 says, heals the heart of the brokenhearted, instead of doing that, I decided that lifting metal up and down was the solution. My arms got huge, but it didn't help my grief. It was not the correct response. It was ultimately unhelpful. I used to know a couple way back that was having very, very difficult marital problems. So their solution, their response was to go to a non-biblical counselor and get all the world's wisdom concerning how to fix their marriage. That's a dumb response. That's the wrong response. Instead of going to the God who can, and only God, who can change their heart and restore them to what marriages ought to be, to what he created it to be, they went and got all of this psychological horse manure that could do nothing to change their heart. No solution. No remedy for the real problem. This week I was watching a show with my wife and one of the characters on the show had an anger problem. And the great solution to this anger problem was of course not going to the God of comfort who provides the peace that surpasses all understanding. It was not going to the God who can enable you through the power of the Holy Spirit to do what is righteous, no matter what the situation, no matter how it makes you feel. No, that wasn't the solution. The solution, the great grand solution was just breathe. Just take a breath. And all your anger, whether it's righteous or not, will dissipate and you will know exactly what to do. Just that is dumb later in this book we're going to see Nehemiah he's going to be slandered people are going to try and kill him they're going to try to stop the work of God and his response he's filled with this righteous anger and his response to the whole thing is not (sighs) problem solved his response isn't hmm His response is not to do some yoga breathing exercise and contort his body into a pretzel. No, that's dumb. That's dumb. In this book, like we see in this passage, what does Nehemiah do? He does the right thing. He does the only wise thing. Jesus said, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy Laden. First Peter 5, 6 says, humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you, lift you up in due time. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. He goes to God. He's his first solution. He's his own, only solution. He is, God is the solution. 
to go to him in mourning, to go to him in fasting, to go to him in prayer. God is the solution. Nehemiah knows without a doubt that without God, he can accomplish absolutely nothing of eternal value, no lasting victory, but with God, there is lasting victory every single time. God always wins. God always wins. So he brings it to God in morning fasting and prayer. Now from there, we dive into the sixth section of our passage. This is where we left off. We dive into the prayer. And this prayer has five parts. Five parts. The first part is praise. Praise. Look at verse five. In light of everything that's happened, his prayer starts with, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and his steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Notice three praises in that verse. First, Nehemiah praises the majesty of God's position. He praises the majesty of God's position. He knows that God is not a man-made idol. He knows that God is not a puny king ruling over a portion of earth. He knows that God is the singular authority at the highest level, that there is no one above him, there's no one equal with him, everyone's below him, that he is the God of heaven, sovereign, in control, over all, worthy of praise, even at this moment. Then Nehemiah praises the majesty of God's nature. Look at the text. He says that God is great and awesome. That word awesome may be translated in your Bible terrible or fearsome or the reverend one. Let me just say it this way. I've known multiple people who can walk into a room and either due to their physical size or their intense knowledge, or their vast experience, or just their booming personality, when they walk into the room, everyone reveres them. Everyone looks to them. Everyone tries to follow them. They're revered. And what Nehemiah is saying is, that's you, God, in every situation. You're always the big one in the room. You're always the one in control. You are the great and awesome one. You know, when Jesus encountered demons, who was the big one in the room? Jesus Christ. What did all the demons do? They just crumble in fear. And they do exactly what Jesus tells them to do. They know who the big person in the room is, despite the situation. When Satan goes to God in Job, or concerning Job, who's the big one in the room? Who's calling the shots for everything. It's God. It's Satan getting permission from the big one in the room to do anything. Anything. All the time. God is the big one in the room. He is the great and awesome one in the room. It's not the problem. It's not the enemy. It's not you and me. God is always the great and awesome one in the room. And he recognizes that despite this situation and says, I'm going to praise you for it. I praise you because of your position. I praise you because of your nature. And then Nehemiah praises God for the majesty of his faithfulness. He says, look at the text again. 
that God keeps his covenants, that his love is steadfast for all who love and keep his commandments, for all those who trust in and follow him. Saying, God, you are faithful. God said to Isaac in Genesis 26, I will be with you. God said to Jacob in Genesis chapter 30, I will be with you. God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 4, I will be with you. God said to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, I will be with you. And was God with them? Was he faithful? You can say amen, yes, every single time. Absolutely. Faithful to keep his promise. His promises are never flimsy. They're never weak. And he says, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. It's not like some churchy, empty promise. It is full and real. You just read the text and he is with, he is steadfast, he is faithful. And in this moment, Nehemiah says, praise you, faithful one. Praise you because of your position. Praise you, God, because of your nature. Praise you, God, because of your faithfulness. That's what he's doing right here in this first verse, opening part of his prayer. And the question is, why? Why in the world is he praising God? Why in the world? He's just heard that the people of God are in great trouble and shame. He's just heard that the walls of the city are broken down and its gates are burned with fire. He's just heard that the people are vulnerable and in danger and God's name is being mocked. But yet he starts this whole thing off, this whole petition to God with praise. Why? Because Nehemiah knows that circumstances don't change the truth. Circumstances don't change the truth. He knows that just because his puny eyes can't see it, he knows that just because his puny heart can't feel it, he knows that just because his puny mind can't comprehend it, he knows that God is still majestic in this moment and he's still more worthy of praise than he can ever give. Always. He understands that the circumstances don't dictate the moment. They're not the big person in the room, that God is still the majestic one worthy of praise, despite what he is going through. You guys remember Job, at the end of Job, the book, you know, God never tells Job, right, why. He never tells Job why he let his land be taken, why his business was destroyed, why God allowed Satan to kill his kids. He never tells him the why. All he says to Job is, look at me. This is who I am. And Job understands in that moment that despite that everything that's going on and everything he's going through, that God is worthy of praise. That Jesus is still, as we sang at the beginning of this service, over everything and worthy of praise. And this is Nehemiah in the midst of a difficult circumstance saying, God, I know that the circumstance doesn't dictate the situation. It does not dictate truth. You're the truth, and I'm going to praise you for these reasons. And you know what the great thing is? When you and I do that, when you and I recognize that the circumstance is not dictating the truth, but that God is truth and he's the one in control and still worthy of worship, and you and I, despite what we're going through, worship God, what happens? What is oftentimes the immediate blessing? 
It's true perspective. True perspective. When you and I are faced with difficulty and we think about who God is and we praise God for who he is, that puts what we're going through in perspective. It puts it infinitely below the God of heaven. It puts it infinitely below the great and fearsome or the great and mighty God that we serve. John Calvin had a great quote in light of this. He said, there is nothing better than to be subject to the majesty of God. There is nothing better than to be subject to the majesty of God. Why is that? One of the reasons is when we're subject to the majesty of God, we're recognizing the majesty of God, it puts everything else in its proper place. It puts it in perspective. It takes the problem that seems so big and it minimizes it to its actual size when we look at how majestic and awesome God is. My mom, I've said this before, whenever there was an issue, she would drag me to the piano and make me sing praises to God. And without fail, it helped me, with everything I was going through, gain perspective. It helped me realize that the mountain of trouble I was facing was just a grain of sand next to the skyscraper of God's awesome majesty. So we've seen Nehemiah's beginning of his prayer. It's with praise. Praise, praise. Then he turns to his plea. Look at verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Notice two details really quick. First, notice Nehemiah's attitude. In light of this issue, there's no entitlement. There's no demand. This, there is no, we don't deserve to go through this. There is no, this is what we deserve. There's just humility. Humility, humility, humility. He's going to God and says, let as in, please let your ear be attentive. He calls himself and he calls the nation of Israel servants, not entitled. It's all humility. It reminds me of the people of Nineveh in the book of Jonah, right? They go to God in morning fast and prayer, just like Nehemiah is doing here. And their request is full of humility. They say, may God, may God relent from the disaster essentially we deserve. It's all an understanding that anything good, every benefit is an act of grace on God's part, undeserved. So he comes to God with humility like we need to. Second, notice we talked about this last week, the frequency of his plea. It's day and night. And like we saw last week, it's day and night from the month of Chislev to the month of Desan, approximately four or five months. And that reminds me of the parable of the widow and the unjust judge. You remember that parable? The widow is just hounding, consistently persisting the unjust judge with her request. And God says at the beginning of that parable, I want to teach you how to pray. And he uses that instance of this widow going to an unjust judge consistently and constantly, and then the unjust judge giving her request 
to say this in Luke chapter 18, verse 7. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? In other words, what I'm trying to say is God wants the frequency of our prayer to be constant, to be without ceasing, ever going to him at the beginning, middle, and end of everything we're facing. And just, I was thinking about this, just think about that, what, what that means concerning, concerning God's love for you and me. He wants to hear, the creator of the universe wants to hear about what you're going through and what I'm going through, like Nehemiah was going through, he wants to hear about it day and night. He wants you to lean on him day and night. He wants you to persist him day and night. It's just an awesome way of saying, people, I love you so much. I want your heartache. I want your feelings. I want everything you're going through. I want to be at the center of your solution and heart throughout the midst of it. It's just an awesome, awesome touch of God's amazing love. So we've seen his plea. It's full of humility. We've seen his plea. It's day and night. It's constant. Now we're going to move on to his confession this is very interesting. Oftentimes, you and I do not confess this way. We do not confess this way. Look halfway through verse 6. He's praying, he says, Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Now, when you and I confess sins, or at least for me personally, maybe you're different, I usually don't use the word we. We. But Nehemiah says, we have sinned against you. I and my father's house, there's another we. We have acted corruptly. Why don't we typically pray like that? Why does that sound weird in the confession of sins for him to say, we, not I or they? I think of two reasons. There's probably more. Reason number one is self-righteousness. I think we don't pray with we, but we pray with I and they because it's so easy to look around us when there's a problem and say, that guy's the problem. I'm trying, not to, point, I'm trying to point to an empty section of the view right now. <laughs> or that gal's the problem over there. It's so easy to have that self-righteous attitude and say, they're the problem. I've only ever been part of the solution. And never to recognize, hey, when there's a problem within the community of God, like in this situation, more often than not, it's not just one person. More often than not, we're included in that. Either we're part of the problem or we have refused to be part of the solution. So we either sin by commission or omission. So I can look at this and in my self-righteousness say, we? Another reason I can think that this is weird, this confession of we, is we're just too individualistic. We're just too American. 
Turn for a moment to Joshua chapter 7. You all know the historical event of Joshua chapter 6. You all know how God utilized the Israelites to destroy Jericho, to give them this incredible victory. But then in Joshua chapter 7, something extremely sad happens. Look at Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. They were not supposed to take certain things from the city of Jericho. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, quite the names, son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel, and you keep on reading and you see the people of Israel go to battle against Ai and 36 people die because of this sin. One man sins. One man sins. But look at the text. Look at the first phrase of verse 1. The people of Israel broke faith. Look at the end of verse 2 or verse 1. The anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel, and the consequences spread throughout the nation, right? Today, one might look at that and say, that's completely unfair. Why? Because they fail to understand that not only are we individual men and women and children of God, but at the same time, we are the people of God. We are the people of God. And what you do and what I do not only affects us personally, but affects and reflects the whole that we are a part of. Let me say it this way. If I go out today and I go out there, go into Eaton Rapids, and I do not shine for Christ in the slightest, right? I sin I do that which is wrong and wicked, and those in the community see it. Who is that going to reflect on? Not just me. It's going to be us, First Baptist Church. And the opposite is true, right? We go out into the community, and you witness for Christ, and you are loving and righteous and sharing the good news People are going to look at you, and they're also going to associate us, which is huge and awesome, right? Same concerning sin, right? You're in my sin, personal, or whatever, if we think it's hidden or not. You're in my sin. Not only does it affect our relationship with God, but it's hindering my effectiveness towards you, my gifting towards you. So thus, it's also going to affect you. Same with righteousness, right? I'm living in righteousness, and there's a blessing to be received for living in righteousness, living according to God, and we all share in that blessing. We all celebrate in that blessing that is received. There's a community aspect here. Nehemiah understands that he's just, it's not just him 
that he has a personal relationship with God and he has a people relationship with God. That he is part of a greater whole, part of a bigger plan than just his isolated self. So he prays in light of it. Not only is he just concerned about his personal relationship, he is concerned about the whole body's relationship. He's concerned about his sin, he's concerned about others' sin. Because he knows, not only is his effective of his personal, it's effective of the group, it's effective of the whole, it just spreads, whether it's positive or negative. So he prays in this light, confessing his own sin, confessing the nation of Israel. I think there's a huge lesson here, right? So often for me, prayer is so individualistic. I find myself saying, I, 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 they, 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 and I, so if I'm honest, I rarely say we. I think we're missing something huge in that. Let's keep on going. So we've seen the confession. We'll touch on this more later. I want to get to what he's, the sin he's confessing right now. What is the specific sin he doesn't list a specific sin here. It could be inclusive of the nation of Israel sinning so much that they're scattered throughout the nation of Babylon. And he's confessing that as they begin to return. It could be that he hasn't returned and many others around him have not returned. They've not listened to the call of God. Whatever it is, Nehemiah understands the root of the problem and the solution of the problem. The root of his problem and the people of Israel's problem is sin. And he understands the only solution is God. He can't take it to anyone else. He can't necessarily confess and forsake it in light of anyone else. The solution is still the same. The solution is always the same. It's I need to go to God. There's no other remedy for this. No one else can forgive me. I can't forgive myself. That is a complete illogical contradiction. He has to go to God. And he's confessing this before God. And you know that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins as we confess and forsake them, as we repent and we look to Christ. That's what he's doing here. So we've seen the praise, the plea, the confession. Now let's look at the confidence, the confidence. Look at verse eight. I'm gonna read through verse 10. It says, remember, he's speaking to God, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are faithful, I will scatter you among the nations, but if you return to me, but if you return to me, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Let me say this this way. This is going to sound totally out of context, but it's going to fit. Jesus is coming back. Amen. Jesus is coming back. Jesus promised that he would come back. And in light of that promise, what do we do? We sing 
about it. And we long for that moment. And we pray, Lord Jesus, come, right? We cling to the promise as we look to God. And that's what he's doing. He's not saying, I'm going to confess my sin and you're going to forgive me because I'm just so righteous. You're going to forgive me because I'm praying for just so long. The reason he goes to God is because God's the solution in every way, in every aspect, in everything. He's saying, I'm going to cling to the promise. Look at the passage again. God promised that he would scatter the people if they disobey, and God's already done that. And God's beginning to answer the request of bringing his people back to the nation and God dwelling with them. So in light of the promise, just like in light of the promise of Jesus' return, we pray, Lord Jesus, come. Nehemiah is saying, hey, in light of your promise, God, please bring this about. You know what's interesting? You can line up every part of this prayer with the Lord's Prayer, right? How does the Lord's Prayer start? Worship, praise unto God. How does it end? Do your will according to your will, right? It's all about him. Here's the your will section. I'm praying in light of your promises. And it just stood out to me. You know what? In order to know the promises of God so we can pray in light of the promises of God, we need to know the promises of God, right? Amen. Which means what? It means we know, need to know the word of God. If we don't know the word of God, which contains the promises of God, we can't cling to and pray in light of those awesome things. We can't, you could say in a way, we can't pray to God's will, according to God's will in that way. So it's so vital that we are deep and entrenched in God's word. So we can participate in something like this. Did you know there's over 7,000 promises in the Bible from God to his people? Seven, there is a promise for everything. Loneliness, there is a promise. Fear, there is a promise. Heartache, there's a promise. Grief, there's a promise. So we need to get into God's word. Like Nehemiah was obviously a man of God's word. So we pray the promises. We pray according to God's will. Just like we pray for Jesus to come back. So that's what he's doing here. He's praying with this confidence. Why? Not because of what he's done, but because he's looking to the awesome promises of God that always come to be. Let's keep on going. We see the praise, the plea, the confession, the confidence. Now let's look at the last section, use me. Look at verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight. That's an awesome phrase right there. Who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man for I was the king's cupbearer. When there is a problem, when there is an issue, when there is whatever you want to say, difficulty, it's so easy to say, go fix it. You over there, you should be fixing that. You should be a part of the solution. I don't like that. You better fix it. Nehemiah doesn't do that. Nehemiah is basically saying, give me success. Allow me to participate in your awesome plan, God. And it's incredible that he's asking him this because... History teaches that Artaxerxes I, the king that he's under, is the guy who signed the order for the wall and the gates to be destroyed. So he's going to the same guy that, you could say, created the problem. To, he, wants to be, he wants to be used in light of him. 
Say, here's the king who signed the problem. God, I'm willing to go to him. And just like in Esther, you go before a king and he doesn't like you, it's, there goes your head, right? And he's just saying, use me. Let me be a part of your awesome plan, God. It's just a tremendous prayer, a tremendous example full of content that we can emulate in our lives, in our own prayer life. So with those five points, I want to move. I was going to do five more applications, but we're going to stick with three. The first application is pray with praise. Regardless of what you are going through today, like for Nehemiah, it does not change who God is. He is still the God of heaven. He is still the great and awesome God. He is still the faithful God, despite whether or not we see it or not. And we need to acknowledge and live and pray in light of that, to fill our prayer with praise for the mighty one. And like I said before, when we do that, what happens? It puts what we're facing in perspective. This minuscule little difficulty for the majestic God to address. So I'd encourage you this week, fill, fill, fill your prayer with praise. One thing Kimberly and I did when we were in seminary, we would get at the couch every night and we would just start listing things we are thankful for, listing things that God has done, listing qualities of God, saying it out loud to one another. And what did that do? Not only was it glorifying to God first and foremost, but it changed perspective. It put the problem where it was in the place, position, and size that it was. Nothing too great for our mighty God to handle. Next application is, we're going to go pray like it's not just you or them. Pray like it's not just you or them. Pay attention to the words you say when you pray. Is it just I or them? Or do I really truly believe that I'm part of the body of Christ, the people of God? And we pray with this we mentality. One reason why I am so encouraged by Wednesday night prayer meeting, why it is so awesome, because the whole thing rings, we are going to God. We're living for God together. It is us in this movement. I am not isolated in any way. This is a body of Christ. Application number three, really in line with what the last point of the passage is, use me. Use me. You may see a problem at this church with greeting. Well, pray for God to use you and be that person who goes out of their way to make others helpful. Say, God, use me. I see the issue. Use me. You may be so sick and tired of a family member that's not following God. Well, we need to pray, use me to be a light unto them, to bring about that change in their life. God, you working not through the other person, but God, you working through the vessel that you've created, you working through me. 
Let's look to the Lord in prayer. God, you are the great and awesome God. You are the God worthy of praise all the time. You are the one over everything. And we thank you, God, for your word. And I pray, God, that your truth would ring in our hearts today. That we would be a people who look to you in this way and pray with praise. praise pray, Lord, like we're part of something bigger than just ourselves. And pray for you to use us. We thank you for the example of Nehemiah that shows us that none of this is without purpose and none of this is empty, but this is full. That you are the answer, you are the solution coming to you. Dear God, I pray as we approach communion that we would see once again that there is, it's only in you that there is the solution. Our sin only in you is their solution through your son, Jesus Christ. It's only by his shed blood on the cross, your amazing grace, that we can find forgiveness, that we can find life, that we can find hope. Dear God, you're so good. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.